Welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, The Thrill, for the week of July 31st. On this week's show, Jon Stewart signs off. He leaves his chair at The Daily Show with a legacy that affects both comedy and politics. Jamie Weinman joins us to talk about the intersection. Then, Degrassi is always greener. The long-running Canadian teen drama was rescued from the brink of cancellation. We speak to a writer about why the show has endured and how much she has to creep teens on the internet to write the show. And this week in beefs, it's been a big week in music conflicts, from Nicki Minaj and Taylor Swift to Drake and Meek Mill. Julie and I will go toe-to-toe over that last beef, specifically whether or not it's okay if Drake wrote his own lyrics. I'm Adrian. I'm Julia. And though Emma's off on vacation this week, it's still the thrill. John Stewart's departure from The Daily Show drew despair from the left and, by and large, antipathy from the right. It was a reflection of the kind of political figure this comedian has become. More than just a silver-haired snarker, Stewart's 16 years hosting The Daily Show made him into a moral beacon, for better or for worse. Jamie Weinman wrote about John Stewart's departure for McLean's, and he joins us in the studio to talk about it. Hey, Hi, Jamie. everybody. Hey. Um, so, John Stewart's last day is August 6th, um, and he's this curious figure in that he is both a, a major icon for, for humor, but also in politics. What is the political legacy that, that John Stewart leaves behind on The Daily Show? Uh, John Stewart, I think, essentially became the um, liberal um, alternative to Fox News. People, uh, you know, with, with Fox News and, um, and talk radio... Um, people were always asking, why can't liberals come up with something like that? And liberals did try and come up with alternatives like uh, their uh, failed uh, talk radio um, uh, service, Air America. Uh, But nobody, it turned out, really wanted to uh, hear that kind of thing. But what Stewart, uh, I think, um, almost um, inadvertently found out was that... um, uh, if you if you do it uh, with comedy, if you do uh, 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 what what is basically liberal commentary um, uh, d- done as a comedy show, uh, you know young uh, liberal um, audiences will flock to that because I think it's it's sort of a difference in temperament. Uh, liberals often don't like to think of themselves as uh, ideological creatures quite in the way that uh, conservatives do. Uh, so conservatives listen to Rush Limbaugh because he tells them that conservatives are right. Um, the liberals don't want to necessarily hear that kind of thing uh, on the radio or on television, but they do want to hear John Stewart, um, you know, uh, snarking about conservative media and conservative politicians. That's, uh, you know, that, that's the cool alternative. But in this, does he leave then, uh, you know, the TV landscape worse than than sort of he had arrived at it? Like, despite his, you know, march for sanity and reasonableness. I mean, the thing about Fox News is that there is a self awareness about it, right? It's like it kind of knows what it's trying to be. It's like right wing. It's it's big and 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 goofy in that kind of way. But then you have a lot of liberals who don't like to see themselves as, like you said, ideologues right. as 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 true liberals. But they do, whether or not they want to admit it, flock to John Stewart to agree with someone, right? Sure. So in a way. Does he uh, does he leave this place uh, more, more partisan. partisan than before? Yeah, you know, I, I think he does, but I don't think it's necessarily his fault. I think you know partisan divisions have uh, have grown and grown, especially in America. Uh, the you know there are very few um, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats left. The two parties have just uh, you know uh, sort of ideologically split on everything, and people uh, tend to uh, live in their own media universes. Um, you know, Stewart to some extent, uh, made it easier for liberals not to hear, um, uh, you know, uh, the things they don't agree with. But even without Stewart, that would have been easy. And of course, you know, conservatives don't have to hear anything they don't agree with. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, the 
one thing I didn't get into in my article that much is that uh, Stewart's uh, effect on political comedy has been good if you compare it to the kind of political comedy that was common on late night television before mm-hmm. John Stewart. Um, the, the the typical example of late night comedy would be Jay Leno, who um, who was famous for trying to have exactly the uh, the same number of jokes um, uh, about Republicans as Democrats have absolutely, um, you know, um, uh, perfect balance and also take on just the easiest targets like, you know, uh, Bill Clinton has sex a lot, George W. Bush is dumb, that kind of thing. Uh, So these really hacky jokes that have nothing to do, I think, with um, the lived experience of uh, politics uh, were the stuff of of political humor in late night. And Jon Stewart changed that to... You know, jokes that actually mattered and actually reflected reality in some way. So mm-hmm. that I think is an important change. And he did blow up late night TV, as I think we understand it. You know, there was yeah. there was a time where everyone thought that he was going to take Letterman's chair, even after you know even, this was well before uh, Letterman actually left. Uh, there was yeah. a lot of love in between the two of them, and there was the expectation that this the Daily Show was like a stepping stone yeah. to to bigger and better things, like you know, like late like true quote unquote late night right. TV. Um, but we don't really think of that anymore. We don't really think necessarily of the the true prestige of those channels, the way or of those shows, the way we used to, right? Right. When, when Stephen Colbert you know, uh, took Letterman's job, uh, a lot of people were disappointed. They felt that uh, he traded down for this mm-hmm. uh, n- uh, th- this position that uh, will uh, kind of dumb him down and force him to make uh, broader, easier jokes. I mean, we'll see what he does, but uh, the, the the fact is that um, Stewart, I think, realized that. Um, um, maybe because he, uh, he, when he took The Daily Show, he was considered kind of a failure in some ways, a guy who was supposed to be the next big thing but never quite got there. And um, in, and he turned this show with not a huge audience into a show that really mattered and, uh, and that everybody had to talk about even if they didn't watch it. So I think he, he, he sort of proved that um, you don't have to have a big audience to have uh, an important show, and uh, and his show um, is the ancestor of a lot of not only political shows but shows on Comedy Central like Key and Peel and Amy Schumer that don't have gigantic audiences but uh, have um, you know a lot of cultural reach. So on that point, I can certainly agree with the fact that, and nearing the end, he certainly did a lot to cement the polarization of the idea of uh, rational liberal liberals versus like evil conservatives, which only contributed to the stalemate that U.S. politics now finds itself in. But I don't think he really started that way. So he probably could have, like, ended it a few years earlier. But when he started, it was more funny than uh, moralizing. Well, And I just but, wanted to ask you, I mean, I think that there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for nuanced reporting and entertainment that doesn't sell. And I think that it, he, I, I have the feeling that he just went over his best best date. Well, I think everybody does. I mean, you can't keep making the same jokes every night for years and and have them, you know, be totally fresh. Uh, and this, you know, but what do you think that did for changing his point of view on becoming more of a liberal moralizer and less of a comedian? I think to some extent, uh, you know, his point of view changed because uh, the world changed. You know, uh, the uh, or or America changed when he started. Bill Clinton was in office. Uh, the economy was booming, and there was the sense that America had kind of um, uh, arrived at uh, a, a consensus position on a lot of things. 
Uh, Clinton was a you know middle of the road consensus politician. He said, you know, okay, the conservatives have a point on crime. They have a point on welfare. Uh, you know, they have a point on this, on that, and. Uh, I think certain things that happened uh, after that, like the 2000 um, uh, election, the Iraq war, um, and many other things changed uh, the point of view of liberals and even you know se- uh, people who thought they were centrists. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it changed their point of view. It, I wouldn't say it necessarily radicalized them, but it made them realize that uh, you can't really have a, a centrist consensus on, on a lot of issues. Uh, that, uh, you know, you... you when I'm sure that when Stewart and I got this impression from his coverage, when Stewart saw how, uh, you know, the the media, uh, uh, you know, including many Democrats, were talking about the Iraq invasion as if it was something that uh, was totally reasonable and totally uh, uh, product of bipartisan consensus, um, I, I think that uh, that made him and a lot of other people fed up with the idea of bipartisan consensus. I don't think Stewart ever lost that uh, belief. But I think uh, you you can't hold on to that uh, belief when you see that um, uh, that, that uh, when you think when you feel your opponents are acting in bad faith. So why don't we talk about the idea of comedians having a responsibility in the public? Sure. Um, so recently, uh, Amy Schumer was called out by Monica Heisey, who was on the show not long ago. Um, for having a blind spot when it comes to race. Right. And then some people said it's just a joke, including Amy Schumer, and other people said you have a responsibility to have moral purpose as a comedian. Yeah. So where do you think that Jon Stewart fell in in there, and, and what did he do to kind of uh, forward that type of conversation? I think all comedians believe in both uh, of these things at, uh, at once. <clears throat> they, they believe that it's just a joke, don't take it too seriously, and uh, I'm uh, making a moral uh, point and co- comedy has a larger purpose. Stewart would often say both of those things, sometimes in the same conversation. Um, I think, um, you know, uh, obviously a professional comedian believes his highest duty is to make people laugh. And more importantly, uh, that uh, the people who laugh know more about a joke than the people who criticize it. So, like, if Amy Schumer tells a joke with, you know, a slightly, uh, you know, uh, that, that's, you know, has a, a, a racial uh, edge to it and the whole, uh, you know, uh, room explodes in laughter, uh, then she she tends to think that, well, that's, you know, that th- their opinion counts for more than the opinion of someone who wasn't there and didn't even, you know, mm-hmm. who didn't pay to get in. Because, you know, <clears throat> what... what uh, yeah, and, and she has a point because how do we know that there aren't uh, you know, people of every, you know, representing every group in that audience? You know, the, the, there's the, you know, uh, and and they're, um, you know, the, the person who's criticizing her doesn't necessarily speak for anybody in in particular. Um, so, they, you know, that that's why comedians are so ferociously defensive of their work because they feel that the, the most important thing, the hardest thing is to make a paying audience laugh. On the other hand, they obviously do see themselves as having some kind of social responsibility, um, a responsibility to make the world a better place. Uh, they, you know, they love talking about Jonathan Swift and Voltaire and all those uh, kind <laughs> yeah. of people. And so I think Stewart um, sees himself as a satirist, but he doesn't want to be uh, you know, uh, forced to live by the standards of a journalist, uh, because if he were a journalist, he'd have to have balance He'd have to be 100% say things that were 100% accurate. Uh, you know, comedy lives by generalizations, 
uh, by exaggerations, by all kinds mm-hmm. of things that are comedy is not fair. Comedy is totally unfair and inaccurate. But on the other hand, it's not. It, it's supposed to be funny if it's true. Right. So. But this is the problem, I think, with with the difference, at least between Amy Schumer and John Stewart, is that John Stewart, I think, more than anyone else, has been able to have his cake and eat it too, right? Yeah. He has, you know, there was you you cited a uh, a big two thousand four crossfire interview. This your you're doing theater when you should be doing debate, which would be great. Do do? No, it's, it's, it's not, not honest. What you do is not honest. What you do is partisan hackery. And I'll, and I'll tell you, you why I, I know it. You on your show and you sniff his throne and you're accusing us of partisan hackery? Absolutely. You're You've a, got to be kidding me. You're on CNN. And you say. My, the show that leads into me is puppets making crank phone calls. <laughs> what is wrong with you? moment you think you know listen i think i think john stewart is great but at the same time i think he's he's been able to to become this lion of of you know uh he's cultivated this idea that he is this lion of reason well and he uh, can put on the hat as it suits him he can right, be a comedian exactly. when it suits how, him and he can that, be a journalist that seems, when it suits him. that seems ridiculous to me especially in his later like the last i feel like really over the last six years or so he's really taken to that and for him to defend himself all but also by saying like oh well you know my show uh is led into by cartoon like by puppets right. or whatever like how can you have that I don't. I don't see how this can make sense to me. Like I. Don't, I feel like this is too much. Yeah, I know. I think. It. Yeah, it's obviously. Um, it, it, it's obviously contradictory. Um, uh, I. I think. Uh, you know. I. I think. You know. If, if you caught him at the, the right moment, he might even admit the cognitive dissonance of it. But I think it's very important to his self-image, to Comedy Central's, uh, uh, and to everyone. That he um, uh, you not be put in the position of having to um, uh, to do um, uh, you know, to, to do the work of a journalist to uh, you know to balance things out to be fair, but the um, I I do think that uh, you know Stewart believes that he's just a comedian partly because um, uh, you know that that's the way uh, that that's the way he started out on the Daily Show and because he's uh, I think he has. As we saw in the rally to restore sanity, uh, mm-hmm. has always considered himself more of a non-ideological person, thrust into, uh, you know, uh, the ideological arena because he lives in crazy times. I think what he's got going for him, though, especially this this idea of cognitive dissonance, being able to be a comedian and a journalist, what he's got for him, and all comedian news, <clears throat> sorry, uh, news comedians have going for them, is that uh, they're liberal. There's not really a conservative, funny person. Uh, satirizes the news that also gets to be a journalist or yeah. one that hasn't certainly that's reached the fame and, and popularity of this guy. Well, I mean, it, you know, I, I don't, re, you know, want to analyze what the, there is. There's certainly been a lot of conservative satire over the years. You know, satire is, you know, you you, you know, go back to uh, Jonathan Swift if you want to be, uh, you know, really highbrow about it. But a lot, there's been a lot of conservative satirists uh, they tend to be, I think, kind of more eccentric, uh, you know, kind of misanthropic uh, guys like Evelyn Waugh, who um, who basically hate everybody. And uh, I guess you know, I mean and, modern day, yeah, like exactly. on television and the Internet. Right. There's no big celebrity that does what it is the counterpart yeah. of John Stewart. And th- that's partly because there aren't a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, conservatives in show business. And, uh, you know, and partly because I think uh, um Conservative humor, as it's uh, developed recently, has kind of a, um, I guess, kind of a trolling tone to it, which, mm. uh, you know, again, like you, in a weird way, Ann Coulter is the uh, conservative, uh, you know, uh, humorist because she says 
um, you know, the, the most outrageous things. And she does have a way with a one liner. But she, her, her whole point is to make people angry. And, uh, As opposed to make them laugh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, or, or you know, th- th- some people will make. She wants to make some people laugh and some people angry. And uh, again, that's not really conducive to comedy because uh, the 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 purpose of a comedian is to make an entire room of people laugh, even if they don't all agree with the you know uh, with you, or even if they're all different people. So it's not. Um, um, you know, comedians can certainly preach to the choir, but I do think uh, they can't. Um, they, they they can't be one hundred percent ideological uh, if they want to um, if they want to be successful comedians. Which is why, um, uh, which is one reason why uh, you know comedians are often not very good allies to the progressive movement because they they do when it comes down to it. Uh, care more about uh, getting laughs than helping society. How many of you have seen Degrassi? At the very least, you've heard of it. The Canadian teen drama began in the 1980s, and it went through a few iterations before it got new life breathed into it in 2001, where it morphed into Degrassi, the next generation. Last month, it was announced that after the end of its 14th season, the series would end. The season finale airs July 31st. But no sooner had fans taken to Twitter to plead with Drake that he make a special appearance to save the series, the Toronto rapper got his start on that show, that it was announced that Netflix would take up the mantle and offer a new season of Degrassi, dubbed Degrassi New Class, debuting in 2016. Since this is a show about teenagers, you can bet that the internet has played a central role in the show for the last few years. This last season saw cheerleaders selling nude photos of themselves on a social networking site, for example. And it stands to reason that that will only increase since it will soon be available on the most popular of TV streaming sites. Its 35-year history also has something that's a favorite topic of both teenagers and the internet, which is nostalgia for a time before its time. It seems like a match made in a teen bedroom when your parents won't let you go out on a Friday night. With us today, we've got a writer and a co-producer, Courtney Walker, from Degrassi, to talk to us about the enduring legacy of the show and, it seems, its great adaptability. Thanks for joining us, Courtney. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. So tell me, did you watch Degrassi growing up? You know what? I was in that little in-between spot where um, when I was a young teen, it was kind of too racy for me. Oh. I was kind of scared of it. Um, so... It was kind of known in my brain as a show where really bad things happen. Oh, you know, like people are getting pregnant and oh having abortions. <laughs> what did you watch as a teenager, just out of curiosity? Um, well, because I kind of came up in the golden age of teen drama, I would say. So it was a lot of uh, Dawson's Creek. Mm, mm-hmm. and, Party of Five, uh, just a guess? Yes. Yeah, me yeah, too. Yeah. Me too. And uh, Felicity. I don't know if you know that one. Oh, do I ever. WB Network. All right. Fantastic. So, yeah, and Buffy, right? Yeah. So many. It was a golden era. That's true. Yeah. So, Degrassi is famous for a cult following of like the little teen drama that could. And I'm wondering, I think we're both wondering why it is so enduring. Like, what does it have that Ready or Not doesn't have or the Edison twins? What is it about Degrassi, you think? I think it's a couple things. I think um, one thing that the show has really been able to capture is the really small personal stories that every teenager goes through. Mm-hmm. And then we also do the bigger, more dramatic things, um, but without sensationalizing them. Um, so on Degrassi, you might see like a body hair story 
or you might see something more dramatic where it ends in suicide or a death of a peer. Um, so I think it's us mixing up the really small, relatable stories with the more dramatic things that has us endure for so long. So when the writers are all together in the writer's room, what do you guys talk about as your goals for what it is that you want to get across in the show? Well, I think our first goal is always to do something that people haven't seen before. And that's really hard when you're working on season 15 of a television show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so sometimes it's finding a really enduring teen issue, but trying to figure out the new way that teens are experiencing it. Um, so we kind of get there by paying a lot of attention to the internet. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, and teens put everything on Twitter, which is probably not very good for them, but it's great for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and they live their all their entire lives online. So we really pay attention to, you know, how they're interacting with each other, how they're interacting with the world, and uh, you know, what are things that are concerning them, and how are their lives complicated, but also, you know, like so I've, Snapchat, for instance. Mm-hmm. So uh, we kind of keep an ear to the ground for things that uh, teenagers are going through. And our main goal is just to have something where a young person can watch it on TV and go, yeah, I felt that. Yeah. Do you have any teens that help you write these things or like any teen consultants? No, we don't. Oh gosh, okay. Um, it, that pushes us to stay connected, which yeah. is great. Because I think the last thing any of us would want to do would... Uh, make a show where a teenager watches it and goes, I have, what are these old people talking about? Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that because, I mean, let's talk about teens. Like, is there, is there honestly a scarier demographic to write for as an adult? This is, this is the group that comes up with all these expressions and we feel immediately old, right? Like, because we once used to be them, but no longer are. I know, and want so desperately to be. (laughs) Maybe that's just you, Adrian. Well, no, they're terrifying. Yeah. Um, And they're wonderful and they feel so hard. Mm -hmm. And, um, that actually makes them a total joy to write for. Because mm. um, in high school, failing a math test feels like as big a deal as something way more dramatic. Yes. Right. Um, so the stakes are always so high, and it's always so heartbreaking. Um, but uh, I feel really old. <laughs> <laughs> and you also, like, I mean, the thing we do in the writer's room all the time is we rehash, like, traumatic events from our adolescence. Yeah. So I, like, when I started working here, I kind of uncovered all these things that I had since buried so deep. And they'd be like, oh, God, I do not remember that humiliation. But, you know, we're talking about something and it triggers something. And you go, oh, that thing that happened in grade 10 that I had totally forgotten about. Whoa. But, you know, lots of deep psychic scars. <laughs> this sounds like, like terrifying therapy. Or, yeah, I was going to say, just <laughs> ad hoc therapy in the writer's room. It absolutely is. <laughs> um, but that's how we get to the heart and the soul and... Um, again, like we just want, you know, we just want our fans to watch it and go, oh, yeah, I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. What And what is like that special sauce that, that makes it so that you guys can write for teens as adults? I mean, sure, you've had like experiences as a teen, but that can only go so far, right? I mean, what, is there something to to writing to someone who is so vulnerable and awkward and, and, fe- and full of feeling? Uh, I think it's just trying to remember, A, that young people are... And young audiences are a lot smarter than I think a lot of people give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And uh, we never ever write down to them. We write to them, but we're never uh, pandering to them or condescending, but we're just trying to get to their heart. And 
so what do you how do you think you do that what is it like i mean there are teen shows that do pander to them there are teen shows that talk down to teens what makes degrassi special i think it's just kind of to what i said before about really remembering uh that everything feels so huge right and that and being honest about that and everything is terrifying right like you couldn't pay me a million dollars to be a teenager. Yeah, I think most people feel like that. Especially now. And the world is the world is scary. And, uh, you know, they did, you know, we read a bunch of research about this generation. And this is a bunch of kids who were born post-9-11 to get a little dark. Mm-hmm. But the world that they've grown up in is a scary place. It's been recessions and terrorism. And uh, they're just trying to get by and succeed and um i think for us we really try to connect with the fact that these are not the same teenagers that we were right and they've also lived in the true golden age of um the internet right as it rises in in the same way that uh degrassi is about to now move to exist on the internet through netflix so what's the feeling of that over there do you guys think that's a good idea we're so excited really yeah oh yeah um i mean we had a really great awesome relationship with Teen Nick, who we were on for, it'll be 14 years. Uh-huh. Um, but teenagers are watching their television on the internet now. Yep. And that's I watch my television through the internet now. <laughs> yeah, well, we all do. Yeah. Like, I don't know when, you know, so, and that experience has really changed. And so we're really excited to be there where they are. And I think we're also excited about the kind of, I mean, we all, we've always gone there. But I think this will give us the opportunity to push a little bit further. Mm-hmm. How does that change the way you write? I, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about writing for binge watching, especially oh. in a comedy setting. But I wonder what that's if that's any different for when you're writing lessons for teens. Essentially, we're still figuring that out, honestly, and we're really excited about how it's all shaking out. But um, I mean, there's some like technical stuff on like managing exposition and stuff, mm-hmm. which is we're figuring out, and it's really exciting. But uh, we're just trying to get people to click that next episode button. <laughs> so it's thrilling. And the fans seem really excited about it, too. Do you as f- I stalk them obsessively on Tumblr. <laughs> well, that's how you have to do it, right? Yeah. Um, do, you, uh, do you feel like you're ever going to hit lesson fatigue? I mean, Degrassi has been running for decades, uh, truly. Uh, and do you ever feel like uh, this is the end of this? Like, I have nothing left. There's nothing left to say about lying. There's nothing left to say about uh, talking to your friend in a tricky situation. Right. Well, I think the way we avoid that is we, in the writer's room, we never talk about the lesson. Right. Which is, I think, at its heart, it's a show about friendship. Mm-hmm. And it's, a re- it's a really a show about peers and peer support. So people make really bad mistakes on our show all the time. (laughs) People have sex when they shouldn't. People do drugs. And we always try to get those characters to a place of understanding, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, we are committed to, you know, like positive messaging and that we want it to be a show that doesn't make kids feel really horrible about their lives, right? We want want them to come out of our shows feeling good. Um, But I think we avoid the lesson fatigue by just saying, how does this specific character deal with this specific issue? Like, even if we've told the FDI story before, we've never told it with this character. Mm-hmm. So you mean personality is a filter for every lesson? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And because, I mean, and that's what has kept the show fresh for so many years is that we've, we go through characters and characters graduate and new characters come in with new families and new problems and new perspectives on the world. Um, so it's not like we're having to do the same stuff with the same characters over and over again. 
Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the biggest name to come out of Degrassi is Drake. Are we ever going to see Drake return to Degrassi? Oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> well, so you're saying get so on you're Twitter, saying get on where the maybe. tweens are, and ask them. Plead. I would love that. I've, I mean, who knows? Who wouldn't? But he's what? He's busy like getting in fights with Meek Mill. Well, Topical. We're going to talk about that next. <laughs> That's actually. our next segment. Well, appreciate you taking the time, Courtney. Thank you so much, oh, Courtney. Thank you guys Have so a much. great summer, XOXO. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> Let's go from a segment about a show that once featured Drake to our show doing a segment that features Drake. The Canadian rapper has been making headlines for his beef with the Philadelphia MC Meek Mill, who claimed on Twitter that the rapper from The Six used a ghostwriter, that is to say he had someone else write his lyrics for him. In response, Drake has fired back, something he doesn't do very often, with two diss tracks. I drove here in a rave playing ARM. I'm not sure what it was that really made y'all mad, but I guess this is what I gotta do to make y'all rap. I mean, oh. There haven't been too many beefs in modern hip-hop, but but this one has proven to be a bit of a hot topic given the stature of these two star rappers. So, Julia, why is this proven to be so divisive? Uh, I think that if anyone's getting in a huff over this, it's because rap is um, quite unique among music, musical genres because it's very lyric-heavy, and those lyrics, by design, are meant to poetically express with a combo of wit and linguistic dexterity, a first-hand experience. Uh, and the better a rapper is at doing this, the more credibility they gain and the, and the more they are considered great. So having somebody else write your raps um, seems disingenuous. Now, I have long been like a supporter of other musicians in other genres being excellent conduits for uh, songs that they didn't write and deserving the same amount of credibility as any songwriter. For example, there's Elvis and Frank Sinatra who did not write their songs, and where would we be without them? I think that it's uh, it, it's the secret part of this beef. It's the ghostwriting. It's not that, uh, you know, ra- ra- rappers uh, have been quietly writing raps for each other for a while. Uh, like Jay-Z, for example, he wrote Still Dre for Dr. Dre. Run DMC wrote Paul Revere for the Beastie Boys. And if you dig, you can find it. But I think it's this idea of the ghostwriting part that people are really upset about. Right. So this is an authenticity issue for you. Yeah. Uh, but this, for me, I guess that's confusing, if only because authenticity has not mattered in, in rap music for so long. You have stars like Rick Ross, who used to be literally a person who uh, ran a jail, who, who you know worked for a jail, and then decided to rap about robbery and drug dealing as if he was not a CO. Uh, you know, this even from its very beginnings, you had... Uh, ghostwriting be an issue. You know, this was a plagiarism. It ended up being a plagiarism issue, but one of the first ever, uh, one of the first ever songs is Rapper's Delight with the Sugar Hill Gang, one of the first mm-hmm. ever recorded songs, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and that Big Bank Hank, yeah, his lyrics were uh, taken from Grandmaster Kaz. This was mm-hmm. a whole issue and whether or not he wrote them. Ultimately, uh, you know, when Big Bank Hank died, it we still cared that this, this you know, important figure in, in rap history did pass away. I think it speaks to the fact of how we see authenticity these days. I think there are still odes to it. I think that that is still a thing that ascendant rappers still have to do. I wonder how much we really they really need to do that. Um, 
Dr. Dre is another example of a of a big icon who has mm-hmm. who has for years and years and years not written uh, his own raps, and we don't respect him any less. If you listen to his his work on Kendrick Lamar's album, it's it's never it's so obvious that he has not written those lyrics himself. So for me, the issue here with Drake is not really a matter of ghostwriting. I mean, the alleged ghostwriter is actually credited in a lot of those tracks. Um, I think that the authenticity. I mean, he speaks in his actions. the The guy is authentic to Toronto, where he's from. I think the guy. Uh, it's hard to criticize, uh, especially a rapper like Drake, who has not never been. You know, his whole thing was he was never like a cool traditional rapper where he was all about gangs and thugs. He claimed to start from the bottom, but was in you know came from Rosedale, and that was fine. Forest you know, Hill. Forest Hill, and that was fine. Um, so I don't think that uh, for me this is this is less an issue of authenticity. For me, this is Drake becoming a pop star. When you're at a pop star level, you can have ghostwriters. That's just true. I yeah, think. I think those are all fair points. I think there's a few things. First of all, the the reason why Meek Mill called Drake out in the first place is not that he gets people to write his raps generally, but that the uh, the issue is that Meek Mill said he invited Drake onto his song and to do a guest verse, and the uh, the issue is that he, Meek Mill thinks that. Drake got somebody to write the guest verse. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a song for his album. It was a song mm-hmm. for somebody else's album. But also I think it's, I mean, the, those are all fair points about the Sugar Hill Gang and Dr. Dre, who is, I would consider more of a producer than a rapper, but that's not without getting too niche here. Um, but I think it's because Drake is in a position to be one of the the greats or one of the, the biggest rappers there are. And I think that's why people take issue with it because of all of the, the greatest rappers um, in the world, the people that consider the greatest rappers, Jay-Z, Nas, Tupac, Biggie, Eminem, they're all considered authentic in the way that they all wrote their own raps and lived their own raps. And you don't need it necessarily, but uh, prefer in pop music, which is maybe what Drake is becoming. But I think to be one of those all-time great rappers, which is Drake, which is how Drake would like to himself positioned, I don't think this is the way to go about it. Mm-hmm. I just think, I mean, ghostwriting has been a part of rap as I was saying, for a long time. Nas, you, you mentioned just now, he actually has ghostwritten for uh, for P. Diddy. Right. Uh, and he's also a producer. Sure, sure enough. <laughs> but I, I think that if we're not, you know, that's, I think that's perfectly fine. I think that it, as an all art... Has Nas ever had people ghostwrite for him? Actually, maybe. I don't know. I doubt it. Though. But as an all art, I think there are, there are writers and performers, and sometimes you have that rare thing where you do get both. Uh, and I think that... Uh, those people become true superstars. And I think that uh, if you ask me, I think Drake and Kanye West and these people certainly wrote their own lyrics when they were coming up. Their level of fame to me has allowed them to enter the pop lexicon. And as soon as you become a big pop star, uh, the questions become less about hip-hop rules, the hip-hop rules of authenticity, the hip-hop rules of uh, of shouting out where you're from and, and, and all those kinds of things. And more to me... Uh, making songs and performing them as as pop songs, uh, that's to me. I, th- I think that this uh, that goes for anything doesn't make as much of a difference to me for that reason. Uh, is that we're talking about two different things: the hip- rules of hip hop versus the rules of pop music. Well, who's talking about that? I think us. Like when we talk about when we talk when we're talking about authenticity and and the idea that Drake should have written his own raps if he wants to be one of the best rappers of all time. I think now being one of the best rappers of all time is also saying I'm going to be one of the biggest pop stars of all time. Right. Well, I think it's certainly true that the way that this the music industry uh, is set up is that maybe it doesn't have enough time or resources for a, a rapper who needs to who is essentially a poet. That's what a rapper is to sit and write all these like you know extract from his soul these perfect personal and perfect beautiful uh, experiences. You know the the hits got to get made, uh, and I think that's fair enough. But you know what? I really think this is about actually. I think it's about two. Uh, Alpha gorillas beating their chest to uh, attract the attention of Nicki Minaj, and I think that's what's what the, what's at the center of this is that for for those who don't know, Nicki Minaj is uh, allegedly dating Meek Mill, 
And Drake's always said to kind of have a bit of a crush on her. Sure. So I think he's just trying to show her that he's a top dog. Or isn't Drake really the ultimate beta male? Well, I think maybe he that had stopped working for him. Fair enough. We're not beefing, right? No, man. We're cool. No beef here. Sweet. <laughs> Sweet. Well, that's it for this week. We're on our summer schedule, so our next episode will come on August 14th. Check it out, as always, at mcleans.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. It would be so great and helpful to us if you wrote us a review or a comment on iTunes. You can also tell us your thoughts about what we talked about with a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on The Hill or our books podcast, The Bibliopod. You can also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work at McLean's Voices. Those podcasts are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J. And me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.